Uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, my name is Dudley Tikaski. I'm professor of theater and chair of the theater department here at Goshen College. Uh, tonight's event is entitled A Bridge Between Peace, Justice, Religion, and Community. It's a symposium in connection with uh, this fall's main stage production of A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller. And we wanted to make sure that uh, in this particular instance, we don't simply put the play out there and expect people to simply wrestle with the issues there. We thought we would take wonderful advantage of the experts that we have among us here at Goshen College and in the area. Uh, so we might delve deeper than we sometimes do into the uh, issues that this play raises. So in addition to this event being sponsored by the theater department, uh, we also have co-sponsors from the Department of Sociology and the Center for Intercultural Teaching and Learning. So we want to thank uh, all of those groups for helping to make uh, this evening's event happen. Uh, I want to encourage you to attend the play, A View from the Bridge, if you haven't already. Uh, maybe a quick show of hands to those of you who have already seen the production. Okay, so well over half. Thank you very much. And uh, there are three more performances coming this weekend, Friday evening at 8, Saturday at 8, and then the uh, closing performance Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Uh, so we encourage you to come and, and take in those uh, final performances. Uh, now, as far as this evening's format, uh, we will have a, a moderator, and I'll in introduce her in just a moment. And we have a group of panelists here and our moderator will introduce them as well. And then we do have a time for open conversation uh, following that. And then, uh, of course, another reason that you may have come this evening, we have some refreshments afterwards out in the main lobby. And I would also encourage you, you to take in uh, two of the displays that uh, are happening concurrently out in the main lobby and the surrounding hallway. There is a dramaturgical uh, research display uh, from Josh Hofer in the surrounding hallway dealing specifically with the play of View from the Bridge and Arthur Miller. And also the CITL uh, program has, uh, this past spring, had an event called the, the Photo Voice Project and a display associated with that with area high school students and college students collaborating on photography and uh, telling their stories. Uh, so taking those as part of uh, your you're leaving this evening or any time over the next 10 days while those remain open. Uh, if we could have the house lights up just a little bit, I'd also like to have anyone who is uh, an actor or part of the production team in A View from the Bridge, please stand now. So stand up. All right, thank you. this time, I would like to introduce to you our moderator this evening. Tamara Islar is the director of A View from the Bridge. Uh, she's a, a graduate of University of Kentucky for her undergraduate work and Western Illinois University for her MFA in directing. We are very pleased to have her here in her second year as an assistant professor of theater at Goshen College. I'll now turn things over to our moderator, Tamara Islar. Dr. Kasky. Again, welcome. In tandem with the play A View from the Bridge, 
The department has initiated a symposium to explore issues of concern in our community. For those of you who have not watched the production, and it seems to be a few, I would like to give you just a brief plot summary of the play. In Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, set in 1950s Brooklyn, Eddie Carbone, an Italian-American longshoreman, lives in Red Hook, Brooklyn with his wife Beatrice and his niece, Catherine. A pillar in the community, the protagonist, Eddie Carbone, is devoted to and protective of his family. After his wife's cousins Marco and Rodolfo escaped the grave poverty of Sicily, Italy, to arrive in America illegally, Eddie's troubles begin. As Rodolfo and Catherine fall in love, Eddie's love for his niece is no longer innocent, yet increasingly terrifying. As he works to retain his authority and defend his reputation, Eddie plummets to utter destruction. Even as a visit to Alfieri, the community's lawyer, it is ineffective in solving the brewing conflict. I would like to take this time to introduce you to tonight's panelist, Dr. Irvin Beck, will present on the life and politics of Arthur Miller and its relationships to the themes of a view from the bridge. He is a professor emeritus of English, joined the Goshen College faculty in 1967 and retired in 2003. You can learn more about Dr. Beck by viewing his other pages via the Goshen College website. You will find articles, a resume, and more information which reflects his personal teaching and research interest. Courses taught here at the college level include Shakespeare, international literature, English language, American drama, just to name a few. Most recently, Dr. Beck taught a four-session course on Arthur Miller's A Death of a Salesman for the Lifelong Learning Initiative program. Jamie Islaw is our second panelist. She will present on the community ethics and law from a legal perspective. Jamie Islar is a graduate from the University of Louisville, Louis D. Brandeis School of Law. She received her Bachelor's of Arts degree in Political Science with a minor in Theater and Latin American Studies. She received the Fulbright Research Fellowship to the Dominican Republic, specifically focusing on conflict resolution strategies between second-generation Haitians and Afro-Dominicans. Her research spans from Santo Domingo, Monte Plata, and Cruz Verde in the Dominican Republic, and Colima, Mexico, just to name a few. Her research focus is immigration law, with a special emphasis on African, Caribbean, and Latin American civil rights issues. Dr. Bob Yoder, who is our campus pastor, will present on religion and the law from a biblical perspective. He is an assistant professor here at Goshen College. He is a campus pastor which provides oversight and directions to the efforts of campus faith development. He received a bachelor's degree from Eastern Mennonite University and a Master of Divinity degree from Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. He received his doctorate degree in ministry at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He has studied for short periods of time in India, Thailand, the Middle East, and Greece. Additionally, he has particular passion for exploring the cultivation of faith identity in Mennonite youth and young adults in America. Regina Stofus is an assistant professor of peace, justice, and conflict studies here at Goshen College, received her BA from Cleveland State University, 
and her MA from Ashland Theological Seminary. She's been training for nonviolent action her entire life. Before attending Goshen College, she spent two years in service in Thailand, meeting and working with people of the war-torn Far East, solidified her dream of working for the church and bringing the world peace. That dream took her to Goshen College because of the school's commitment to the Christian ideas of justice and pacifism. I present to you our panelists. We'll do our presentations in order with Dr. Beck, and then Jamie Isler, Jewish doctorate, and then we'll move to Regina Stofus, and we'll end with campus pastor Bob Yoder. And I'm glad we took a moment. There is one piece I'd like to leave you with. This is a brief caveat before we begin our panel discussion. Please keep in mind that this program is both audio and videotaped and will be available on the View from the Bridge production webpage as a podcast. This program will also be available via video to the public at large at the Good Library. Please keep in mind when making your presentations or asking questions. In addition, we'd like for you to think about privacy issues. So when you're giving a story about an individual or making a point, please make certain not to give their name as it is being recorded. All right, without further ado, here is our panel presentation. Thank you. I'm honored to have been invited to join this panel. My task is to point out things about Arthur Miller and his life and commitments that relate to this play in 10 minutes. Uh, Arthur Miller died in 2005 at the age of 90 years. He had the reputation of being one of America's leading public intellectuals, uh, by which we mean his plays not only dealt with uh, public issues under discussion, um, but he also spoke very often uh, to groups and uh, wrote a lot of essays. Uh, was fully engaged and committed in regard to American public affairs, moral, political, and social. He was born to immigrant parents. So he knew uh, the, the uh, immigrant community and he probably knew some undocumented uh, aliens. His parents were from Poland. His parents uh, made a fortune in the United States, but they lost everything at the beginning of the Depression. And Arthur Miller, at the age of about 15, had to help support the family uh, through menial labor. And even after he earned his degree at the University of Michigan, he worked as a longshoreman for a while uh, in New York. So he knew the lower class, the working class, and the longshoreman uh, community. Uh, probably more important, more influential, was the fact that Arthur Miller and his parents were Jews. Uh, he went through the bar mitzvah uh, when he was a teenager, but he says he became an atheist at 15 years of age. And I think that's relevant to the kind of tragedy that he uh, wrote. However, he said, and he often referred to his social conscience. He was very self-conscious about having a social conscience, and he spoke from it uh, to the American people. And he says that had its origin in the ethics and the uh, faith and beliefs of the Jewish community. Actually, when he married Marilyn Monroe, they had a Jewish uh, wedding ceremony, and Marilyn Monroe became a serious convert, at least for a time, uh, to Judaism. Um, Arthur Miller also was a socialist, by which I mean uh, a Marxist in philosophy, and uh, maybe he was even uh, a member of the Communist Party. He was apparently a member of a writer's group that was sponsored by the Communist Party, and he wrote for some Communist Party publications in the United States. Now, that's not surprising. 
because he matured during the Depression, which was, after all, the uh, failure of the capitalist economy, the capitalist system. And at that point, socialism and communism looked like an, a viable alternative to very many American uh, intellectuals and artists, not just Jews, but including many Jews. Um, Jews, especially from Eastern Europe, which his uh, parents were from, and Russia. Uh, socialist writers, of course, say that literature must be a tool for transforming the social order, not art for art's sake. And uh, many or most of Arthur Miller's plays can be seen to have that ultimate agenda. Uh, Arthur Miller was especially popular in England. His plays were better received in England than in the United States. Uh, and that's because England, since the uh, Second World War, uh, was much more socialist than the United States. Uh, after all, the Labour Party dominated until the coming of Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party. In the play, um, Eddie uh, rats on his uh, friends, he squeals on his friends, he names names to the immigration authorities. Arthur Miller refused to name names when he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1956. They were investigating um, intellectuals, artists, and other people who were suspected of uh, being members of the Communist Party or having communist sympathies. The Communist Party had been outlawed, and uh, many uh, very uh, outstanding Americans were brought before that committee and uh, interrogated. This was the same year as A View from the Bridge. So the notion of betraying one's friends was also a part of Arthur Miller's experience at that time. Arthur Miller was uh, found in contempt of Congress because he wouldn't give anybody's names, although that was overruled uh, two years later. In 1956, he wrote this play. He was uh, questioned by the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he married Marilyn Monroe. It was a busy year for Arthur Miller. <laughs> Someone said it was the great American mind marrying the great American body. Uh, we can see that kind of in sexual infatuation in the play, uh, perhaps uh, some parallel to his own with Marilyn Monroe. Maybe that's the downside of Arthur Miller's uh, flirtation with uh, popularity and being in the uh, spotlight of American uh, affairs. Arthur Miller self-consciously imitated Greek tragedy in some of his early plays, as he is doing in A View from the Bridge. Think Oedipus Rex, if you've ever read that uh, tragedy. Uh, he studied playwriting at the University of Michigan under a, uh, an instructor who was very good in teaching his students how to put together a play using Greek uh, drama, especially Greek tragedy, as a model. Uh, this play, more than any other by Miller, uh, shows that influence. The original text calls for a stage setting that has two columns and a pediment, which would uh, replicate in a basic way uh, the uh, front of a Greek uh, temple, the Parthenon, uh, for instance. Uh, in the play, also, uh, we have a chorus somebody who interprets people to the audience, speaks directly to the audience, helping the audience understand what's going on in the play, 
being a bridge between the actors and the audience. That, of course, is Al Fieri, a one-person chorus, whereas the Greek chorus had many more. Also, notice that the immigrants in this play are from Syracuse. Uh, that's a city in Sicily, Italy, uh, that island at the uh, foot of Italy. Uh, Syracuse, at one time, was a Greek colony city that rivaled Athens in terms of wealth and power. So they may be Romans, they may uh, be Italians, but they are connected with that Greek tradition over a period of maybe 3,000 years. Also, I think it's no accident that the main character is named Eddie. Isn't that a nickname for Oedipus? Think about it. Uh, in Greek tragedy, <laughs> Greek tragedy offers a kind of two-track analysis of why human experience can go down in such a tragic <coughs> defeat. One of those, of course, is the tragic flaw. Uh, some failing, some error, some mistake, some moral lapse found in the main character that helps bring about his or her own destruction. But at the same time, in the Greek tragedy, that character is working within a system, some overarching, unchangeable uh, set of rules that uh, oppress him and determine his fated ending, some kind of unchangeable law, whether that is the gods of ancient Greece or fate, some mysterious absolute force or providence in Shakespeare's plays, the Christian providential order that one cannot escape from. Now, Arthur Miller was not a religious man, uh, so he could not um, write a play which had some kind of metaphysical system that that hero suffered under, fate or providence. Uh, as a socialist, um, socialist writer, for instance, like Henry Ibsen, uh, this tragic character uh, exists within human structures, human systems. And uh, in, in a socialist drama, it's the human system that uh, creates failure. But the upside is that the human system can be changed, unlike fate and the gods. Uh, and so that's why um, the um, uh, plays of socialist writers tend to be more social protest. They, expose the failings of a certain social system and encourage the audience to do something about it. Uh, classical tragedy says nothing can be done. Socialist tragedy says something can be done and something must be done. Um, Arthur Miller sometimes called his plays Ibsen Greek tragedies. I think his most successful one along that line is The Crucible, uh, which indicts the um, uh, theocracy, an absolutist theocracy. Uh, Death of a Salesman does a pretty good job of exposing the capitalist system which uh, oppresses Willie Loman. Uh, I think the view from the bridge actually uh, is much more of a classical tragedy than any of those uh, because I, um, well, I want to say is it's less of a social protest play than either of those is and more along the lines of a classical tragedy. Uh, and here's what I mean. Uh, it's very clear that Eddie has a fatal flaw, and that is his repressed or suppressed desire for Catherine, and probably also his unacknowledged homosexual attraction 
to um, Rodolfo, who, when he first meets him, says, gives him the heebie-jeebies, and uh, whom he kisses and gives one explanation for, but uh, probably it's an expression of something deep-seated in him. That is something, uh, those desires are things that he never acknowledges, even at the end of the play. If it's a tragedy, he ought to come to some sense of recognition, but he never does. In what system does he operate? What is the social system that needs to be changed? I think the temptation in this discussion would be to say it's immigration law. Uh, we're looking at it um, from our point of view. And of course, um, that is relevant because immigration law is enforced at the end of the play. Uh, or maybe it's the mafia or the syndicate um, that is a system that lies behind this play and brings these undocumented Im immigrants and probably controls the um, community in many other ways. I think though, if you think about what happens in the play, the social code, the social system that operates at the end is that folk system of justice that these um, Italians, Sicilians, uh, the mafia has brought with them to uh, Brooklyn. Uh, this code of <coughs> private revenge, uh, this code of honor, of uh, reacting to um, a challenge to one's good name uh, in a very uh, violent way. So that um, Eddie carries out private revenge against Rodolfo and Marco. And at the end of the play, when uh, Marco accuses him in public of betraying his friends, uh, he sets out to uh, kill Marco because Marco has blemished his good name, which is a little bit paradoxical because, of course, he's guilty of the very thing that Marco accuses him of. So that he sets out to kill Marco and Marco sets out to kill him and uh, succeeds. So it's that code of family rivalry, uh, private revenge, I think, that the Sicilians bring with them to New York City uh, that really is the system that causes the tragedy in the end. After all, the, the um, chorus, Alfieri, is the law. He's a lawyer, and he represents the law in a symbolic way also. He's a level-headed guy who gives Eddie the kind of advice he needs and never criticizes immigration law, for instance. So the, I'm not saying the play is not about immigration, but I think that the immigration system is not the main cause of the main tragedy here. And I'll pass to my friends. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Jamie Islar, and I am a graduate of the University of Louisville, Louis D. Brandeis School of Law. Today's presentation is entitled, The Venture to Bridge Two Worlds, um, The Clash Between Individualism and Family-Centered Ethos. Today, we're going to talk about Italian loyalty, what the first Italian immigrants brought with them to the United States. We'll also talk about the importance and uh, emergence of these little Italy's that were formed in the United States. We'll also analyze and talk about this whole concept of respectful and how this can be inferred to um, kind of help alter 
the uh, Italian Code of Ethics within the United States. We'll also look at the role of the individual, followed by immigration law, specifically in the 1950s, which was um, actually the time of author Miller's production. I would like to read to you um, an excerpt. <coughs> the immigrant should never abandon his feelings of the value of being an Italian. And even if you assume the nationality of the country in which you have settled, Never deny and never forget the sublime moral inheritance of your ancestors. Thus, will you ever remain a true son of that world extensive and strong Italy. Long live Italy forever. This passionate patriotic message was actually inserted into the first Italian's passports um, before coming to the land of the free. Um, this passage or message was actually um, to remind the first Italians that you should never forget where you came from. Space and time should not limit your loyalty to Italy. And with these words, they departed. The emergence of Little Italy, it's important to actually um, look at this because it actually is kind of like the foundation of um, the moral ethic codes that was actually brought back from Italy to the United States. And particularly, um, statistics reveal that between 1901 to 1950, approximately 3,736,405 Italians immigrated to the United States. Um, out of that number, 90% settled in 11 <coughs> states, only 11 states, including New York. By um, 1890, when the Italians came over, unfortunately, they were the victims of many, many um, discrimination, violent acts. In particular, the most notorious accident or incident was actually in 1890 uh, when we had the New Orleans lynching of 11 Italians. Thus, these little Italies were actually formed as a result of the hostility in which they face from the American society. So what exactly um, is the importance of these little Italies? Um, well, the Italian immigrants clustered heavily in ethnic communities to recreate old world celebrations and rituals. These new world societies help fuel an emerging Italian American ethnic culture, such as they have their own newspapers, their own restaurants, <coughs> their own mutual aid societies where they actually help newcomers um, actually learn how to become a U.S. citizen for those who wanted to become a U.S. citizen. Long live Italy, loyalty questioned. Um, any question of loyalty from the Italians were actually answered in 1941 when Italy declared war on the United States. Um, many Italian Americans rushed to the aid, not of Italy, but to the United States, which stressed conformity, loyalty, and patriotism. <coughs> By 1945, more Italian immigrants started to rise again. The number of um, Italian immigrants started to rise. By the 1950s, it is um, said that Italian Americans actually comfortably settled into the melting pot. 
In fact, between 1951 through 1960, 7% of the total immigrants were Italian. This actually allowed the social mobility of Italians to actually increase up the social scale and they were able to embrace the middle class values. This whole concept of respecto. Thomas Schaefer, who is a legal scholar that uh, specializes in legal ethics, actually um, described and studied this whole concept of respecto, in particular with the Italian-American culture. He used respecto instead of the English word respect out of its historical um, negative connotations de dealing with organized crimes. So when we look at respect, though, it's with dealing with the moral value, which helps um, one to understand what exactly these moral codes were that Italian Americans actually um, adopted. What is respect, though? Well, Schaefer defines it as a virtue or good habit through which the person learns, practices, teaches, and remembers his or her place within the family. It deals with community. It acknowledges one's position publicly, which we did see in Arthur Miller's production. So how does respect, though, work? When we, when we look at individualism, we think of an individual, the moral values of an individual as one opposing the family institution. From an external view, the individual uh, particularly with Italian immigrants, was family. It, it was loyalty within the family. The protection of family, the skill, re respect though, this, fam this skill to love the family um, actually deals with protecting the family. And Schaefer actually says protection of family is weakened by the open wiles of the alluring ideology of individualism. The family function as a collective enterprise, an all-inclusive social world which the individual was subordinated to the larger entity. Schaefer actually envisioned that the first Italians would have envisioned individualism, this community of government policy, as befitting an empty sack, someone without family. So now, when we look at respect, though, this whole concept of the Italian code of ethics, it's um, actually how, how does it work? Well, when we look at it, uh, number one, a sense of place. The generation of immigrants expanded protection of the family to include fellow villagers. So even though um, Italian-American moral, the moral value is focused within the family, we're now seeing that it's expanded, it's extended into the larger community. And when we do mention family, it's not restricted to blood relationship. It extends to the organic family, to the extended family. We also see independence the desire and skill to act on one's own and to go to the family if you seek help. Courage, this Italian um, language here, this, this Italian saying goes, fame does not come to one who lies on feathers under a blanket. Self-respect, not for self-individual, but respect in and for family. Respect for place of outsider so that one does not flaunt 
one's own ways in the presence of strangers. Thus, when in Rome, do as Rome's do, as evident with Marco's character. Immigration law. It's important to actually see the time building up to the 1950s, uh, and particularly the 1924 Immigration Act, which racial, rationalized uh, national origin quota system in which it uh, excluded the eligibility on the basis of race, ethnicity, and nationality. It reduced how many um, immigrants were actually allowed to immigrate to the United States from 357,000 to 170,000. The whole overall objective, uh, many say, social historians say, is to keep America white. The um, Italians and Jews were considered at that time non-white. So here we are in 1952, the groundbreaking Immigration and Nationality Act, signed June 27, 1952. This actually codified immigration legislation into one system, which the goal primarily was to protect the American labor market. Um, here we begin to see the first system of visa preferences. So here we have where some um, some preferences were going to special skills such as education, training, while the other were, was reserved for family re relatives. So if you got married, um, you could actually uh, <coughs> become an immigrant or become um, a U.S. citizen that way. This also established the foundation of immigration law for many years to come. Post-1950 and 1965, we have the Immigration Act, which actually abolished the racial national origin system. And in 1986, we have uh, the new Immigration Reform and Control Act, which granted amnesty and tem temporary status to any undocumented immigrant who continuously lived in the United States uh, since January 1st, 1982. In conclusion, what author Miller plays production, it, did talk about immigration, and now where, where do we go from here? Well, it's a dialogue of immigration continues. Many states, as we have seen here in Indiana in particular, and many other states are actually attempting to recreate immigration policy. This whole notion of respect, though, which the first <coughs> Italians and actually brought back this whole moral value of the family and how to, um, to, encourage, to encourage the individual to actually talk and to become one with the collective unit, actually encourage us to build upon civic uh, engagement, to talk about public concerns, so where the individual can actually come together and we can bridge this dialogue to help uh, move from where we are currently. Thank you. I will be continuing talking about immigration stories and pulling back um, all the way back to 1794 a little bit uh, in the theme of immigration stories being the stories of our country, sometimes stories that are romanticized, perhaps overly romanticized, and sometimes we hear the stories uh, of those who are demonized, and often it is the story of new immigrants who are demonized. Um, the new group that is coming in. And so I'm interested in thinking about and talking about what happens, what are the ripple effects of these new folks coming in. The passage of time often blurs the sharp edges of the stories, the immigration stories, 
And we need to hear those stories documented not only in history books, but in the arts as we do these two weekends, uh, peering in on the immigration story and the, the broader story of family, of belonging, of connecting in this play. And so we're privileged to have uh, this story, this view from the bridge. The multitude of waves of immigration each carry their stories of loss and struggle, and that loss and struggle is often realized, um, if not always realized, on both ends of the journey. Each group bringing that ripple effect, uh, and the new with the new group, uh, the immigrating group moving into an area where someone else already lives, and those someones are often experiencing their own particular stories. So just as the immigration stories of today in the 21st century, even the immigration stories that we are aware of in Goshen, Indiana and uh, surrounding Elkhart County, so do the immigration stories of the past offer insight into those ripples that shape, for instance, government policies as uh, we were just listening about and policies that we may cringe to think about many generations later. Uh, once we get beyond that moment. They tell a story of who is in and who is out. For instance, the Naturalization Act of 1790, the first rules in the U.S. Um, of naturalization after the ratification of the Constitution. It read uh, like this, any alien being a free white person who shall have resided it within the limits and under the jurisdiction of the United States for the term of two years may be admitted to become a citizen if he is a person of good character. And so uh, some, some boundaries around who is fit to become a citizen and the boundaries are not only about you know, who would be a good person um, to admit as uh, a naturalized citizen into these United States, but even more boundaries um, and, and as we just heard those boundaries being uh, put around ethnic groups and racialized. And so we have this emerging uh, understanding in the U.S. of race that isn't what we think of it today. It, it shifts and changes as time goes forward, on the, and those shifts and changes often are connected to who's coming in, who's trying to come in. And so this naturalization law, 1790, leaves out certain people by virtue of this very specific language that is being used. It leaves out indentured servants. Certainly we know that this would be, these would be groups of people that would be coming over. Leaves out certainly slaves and free blacks and later Asians as, as more laws uh, and more boundaries are put uh, in place. And there's a, a gendered notion around uh, this first law as well, this first act as well. While women were included in the act, the right of citizenship did not descend to persons whose fathers had not been residents in the United States. So citizenship at this point in time was uh, inherited exclusively through the father. And so as time goes on, uh, things change. But this idea, this notion of particularly whiteness is a new kind of language and a new way of of talking about who people are and how they belong. By 1795, the Naturalization Act restricts citizenship 
to still free white persons uh, who reside in the United States for five years and those who renounce their allegiance, allegiance to their former, former country. After the Civil War, sort of fast forwarding ahead, <coughs> immigration rises to new heights uh, in the 1880s and then again there's a swell of immigrants coming uh, across the waters between 1905 and 1914 and the response of all of these people, hundreds of thousands and millions of people coming over, the response uh, in, in certain years is this panic of all these people coming because resources are stretched. And so again, the considerations of who can come, what kind of people can come, how do we put restrictions and limits uh, on this. And during this time, the response is a period of nativism and particularly uh, targeting Southern and Eastern Europeans. For instance, there is a, um, uh, there was lots of writing about, you know, who these people are, who are these people and why they should or should not come. And so one example of that would have been from uh, Protestant minister and reformer Jos Josiah Strong who detailed the dangers of immigration in a booklet that he published called Our Country, its present crisis and its possible future. And the crisis that he, that Strong outlines is immigration. In Strong's view, the new immigrants congregated dangerously in big cities. They supported the pernicious liquor trade. They allowed themselves to be manipulated by corrupt political bosses. They carried socialist ideas, and they gave allegiance to foreign leaders. And so all of these are reasons why we ought to uh, limit and be very careful about who can come in. And of particular interest during this time is the reshaping of ideas about race, as has been named, as Irish, Italians, Sicilians, Jews, and other European groups uh, can be said to have earned their way, <coughs> excuse me, earned their way into whiteness. All of these groups and more would be groups who at this period of time, when the idea of race and racialized identities are still uh, being worked out, and we can say that that's still happening today. We never get to a point where racial categories are settled and you know these are the categories and this is who fits in them, it's always fluid uh, because of, of it being a social construction. And so uh, as during this period of nativism and period of heightened uh, immigration and concern about who's coming and what kind of people may come, the idea of, uh, uh, as has been named, keeping the country white um, means that some groups need to work their way into whiteness. And so scholars like Matthew Fry Jacobson and Noel Ignatiev uh, trace this progression in, in their research. Jacobson uh, has written a book called Whiteness of a Different Color, European Immigrants and the Alchemy of Race that talks about uh, this, this very subject. And he talks about the political history of whiteness in the US that begins with that 1790 naturalization law of uh, free admission of free white persons into the republic. Jacobson says in his introduction that racial categories themselves 
reflect the competing notions of history, peoplehood, and collective destiny by which power has been organized and contested on the American scene. And so, for instance, he talks about an article in Harper's Magazine in the 1890s that uh, offers uh, what is positioned as a guided tour into the Italian life in New York. And so it's an account, it's, all, it's this really exoticized account, almost as if you are going on a safari into New York to see these strange Italian people. Um, Italian neighborhoods read like this exotic tour, and one quote is the swarthy Italian with his brown-skinned wife at his side. In areas of the country where Italians lived side by side with blacks, and in some cases fraternized and worked alongside because as new immigrants they were relegated to um, you know, the lowest jobs on the, on the ladder of success. And so they would find themselves often uh, uh, working alongside with African Americans who were at the bottom of the hierarchy. And so Italians were at risk of not gaining status or losing status as white people, uh, often described as being like Negroes or as bad as Negroes. And this begins um, some of the rift that comes in between the Italian-American uh, Italian community and African-American communities because this uh, loss of status of being side by side is something that uh, folks are paying attention to because um, one of the things that immigrants want to do in their new setting is succeed. Um, Italians for a while, uh, for a great while, in their immigration story occupied a middle ground in the racial order, in this hierarchy, um, up into the first quarter of the 20th century. And certainly stereotypes <coughs> about Italians uh, as a white ethnic group linger longer than that. We still uh, have, have remnants of, or the, the reality of these stereotypes hanging around. One final note on uh, the country's preoccupation with race and racial categories and how attention to such orders social life. Not only uh, who can come in, who can become a citizen, where can people live, but even around uh, societal uh, parts of society, important parts of society, such as marriage and, uh, and the establishment of families. Uh, in um, much of the country up to, I think the last, um, the last law on the books was on the books as late as 1967, the laws against interracial marriage. Uh, one example that, that has a connection to the Italian-American community is the 1922 case of Rollins versus Alabama. Jim Rollins, who was a black man, uh, had been convicted for the crime of interracial marriage. It was a, a crime that one could indeed be convicted uh, for. Rollins versus Alabama, however, reversed the conviction on the grounds that the state had produced no competent evidence to show that the woman in question, Edith Labou, was indeed a white woman. And this was because Labou was a Sicilian immigrant. And at this period of time, 1922, Sicilians uh, and Italians had not achieved status as white people in the United States. And so the interracial marriage laws in this case 
at this point in time did not apply to them. I'll be, uh, I was invited to offer uh, a brief overview of a biblical view of justice and peace. And so uh, the Hebrew word shalom would be a word that connotes biblical justice and peace quite a bit. It concerns itself with material and physical state of affairs, being in right relationships with God, with others, with self, with creation. And it demands the transformation of unjust social and economic orders. And so a cultural uh, reality or difference between biblical times and 21st century America would be that of a communal worldview outlook versus a highly individualistic one. Today, many Americans seem to be so concerned with myself and my well-being, but for those in biblical times, there was more of a concern about the well-being of the community, um, recognizing my own place in that community. And a biblical understanding of justice and peace is concerned with the salvation and well-being of God's people. And so salvation from a highly individualistic American point of view often focuses on an individualistic relationship with God. And therefore we talk a lot about my personal relationship with God, with Jesus. Salvation from a biblical point of view focuses on right relationships with God, with others. It points to things as they ought to be, the things that God had intended or God desires for people. Um, take, for example, the story of Zacchaeus, the once corrupt Jewish tax collector. It was uh, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus where Jesus declared salvation onto Zacchaeus' household only after Zacchaeus righted his wrongs with those he cheated and therefore could once again have a right relationship with God. Listen to the story of uh, Luke 19. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Right relationship with God meant that you also needed to have right relationships with those around you. In essence, living rightly and justly meant living in a way that God required and God desires for us. In the New Testament, the Greek word dikaiosune was used to convey this concept of doing what the Lord requires. In English, it's often translated as either righteousness or justice. And so anytime you see the word righteousness in the New Testament, we tend to think of it as being personally right with God and thus emphasizing the vertical relationship with God, particularly for a 21st century individualistic American that I am. But this Greek word can also be translated as justice, which in a 21st century American living, we tend to focus on the horizontal relationships with people. Right relationship with God and with other people is to be intertwined. It's a both and, at the same time kind of thing not so much a separate compartmentalized thing. And so for Zacchaeus, he did what the Lord required, which meant he restored right relationships with those he wronged, and thus Jesus declared salvation unto his house. But doing what the Lord requires from a biblical perspective is not just about righting the wrongs of those you have wronged or cheated. It's working for what God wants and desires on this earth. In the New Testament, this concept is talked about the kingdom or reign of God, the reign of heaven, 
uh, on this earth, which in many ways is a continuation of the message of the Old Testament. One specific aspect that relates to our conversation this evening is that God is a lover of those on the margins, the widow, the poor, the orphan, a liberating justice. In Deuteronomy 10, it says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And in chapter 24 of the same book, Deuteronomy, you shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. And there were some very practical ways that lived this idea out among the, the Jewish people. In Deuteronomy 23, we read of eating but not hoarding. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in a container. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And in chapter 24, it talks about providing food for those in need. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you <coughs> gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. And so, an example of this idea is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, not an Israelite, who had married a Jewish man. Her husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law, all Jewish individuals, died. They were living in the land of Moab. So Ruth journeyed back to the land of uh, near Bethlehem with her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. And while back near the town of Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi were working in the harvest fields, gleaning behind the reapers of the field. And to make a long story short, Ruth meets Boaz, who marries her. They have children, and one of their descendants is Jesus of Nazareth. And Boaz was viewed as a just man in this story. Another example from that time uh, concerns itself with different kinds of polygamy, or a particular kind, called a Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25. When brothers reside together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage, and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. If this was not done, the widow would likely live a life of poverty and destitution and lose the family land of that context. And so once again, this was one way the community was called to care for and look out for those in society who really needed it. And so God also wanted just and right <coughs> leaders to lead people. And previously I mentioned that in the New Testament, the Greek word dikaisune means both justice and righteousness. In the Old Testament, Hebrew, there were actually two different words, tzedakah, righteousness, and mishpat, justice. But those two words were often linked together. 
as found here in Psalm 72, talking about a just and righteous king. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. The prophets of the Old Testament often called out against unjust and unrighteous leadership. Isaiah 10. Ah, you who make iniquitous decrees, who write oppressive statutes, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be your spoil and that you may make the orphans your prey. And so often when coming into a city, if those most in need of assistance, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, or alien, were taken care of, then you could count on the city functioning as it should be. But if there was an abundance of such marginalized people and high need, then you could count on that the community was not taking care of itself. And so the role of the true prophet was to call the leaders and people's attention back to the ways that God had attended. False prophets were labeled as such by those who sided with the unjust and unrighteous leaders, saying words that those corrupt leaders would want to hear. And so in the New Testament, this kind of continues on. And we look at the book of Luke, chapter 1, precursor to um, announcing Jesus' life and ministry. And it's part of the song of praise by Mary Magdalene. His mercy is for those who fear from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And Jesus, as he begins his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, quotes the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah by saying this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so throughout the New Testament, people following God and in the way of Jesus are called to a new way of living in this world from what they may have been living. This is a consistent pattern throughout the scripture and certainly continues into the writings of the Apostle Paul. And for one example of that, let's look at the Galatian church. The Galatian church is in turmoil. They're dividing amongst themselves, and Paul writes to this messed up situation. And he says this in chapter 5 of Galatians. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul is basically describing two different ways that a community of people can live out its life. One full of division, which was what was happening here in the Galatian church at this time, and one filled with the Spirit. In examining the fruit of each of these two kinds of communities, you only need to smell the aroma that each gives off. Is it stinky or does it smell good? Is it one of justice and right living with each other? 
Or is it one of not looking out for the other person? Does the community build up or does it tear down? And so Paul implores the Galatian church towards the end of his letter to live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit, Paul writes. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. And he concludes, so let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. just a few minutes to participate in open conversation. If we can have the house lights come up just a bit, we have Dr. Doug Kasky here with the microphone. If you have a question that you would like to offer to any of our panelists, please raise your hand and we will move forward. And this is very heavy, so we may take some time just to process. Thank you, panelists, giving us the time to think and to consider. As we're holding, Dr. Beck, I'd like to ask you a question here. I'd like to know from Arthur Miller's personal life, what pieces do you see echoed in the production of A View from the Bridge? Um, well, I think um, for the moment, at the time when he wrote the play, this question of um, reporting to the authorities, uh, someone close to you, a friend, uh, I think that's the most uh, obvious and uh, deeply moral uh, part of the play and the thing he was going through uh, in his own life at that time. So I would, I would point to that as the most important thing. Excellent. Thank you. Um, throughout, throughout Eddie's conversations with lawyers, he keeps saying the idea that there should be, in a sense, kind of that there should be a law for all this injustice that he feels he's experiencing. Um, looking at these four lenses that we have um, with the idea of theatrical law, justice, and more of a faith aspect, what would your, I guess, reaction be to, maybe not reaction, but I don't know, answer to how Eddie is seeking for that law which in the system does not exist? In the, in a sense, in the American system does not exist, but could exist in another social realm. So more on the idea of if I'm not able to get what I want, if the law doesn't give an answer that I feel <coughs> is good, then what do I do differently? How do I take justice into my own hands? Something of that sort there? Or a bit more, clarify that for me, please. More of the idea, well, personally, when I was listening to it, I was thinking about the fact that certain things that he was looking at Okay, things throughout the play could have been prevented if people would have stuck to this idea of righteousness or sticking to other values that weren't necessarily upheld. Now, Eddie was a little bit more, I would say, homophobic in a sense to, I think, his own desires, and that really disturbed him. And this idea of his niece leaving him was a big thing that he thought was injustice towards himself. But 
the idea that I really felt like there was a seeking for another kind of law, another kind of justice that wasn't presented in the world he was living. So maybe it is, it, as you responded, the idea that he was wanting to have his wants gratified in the way that he couldn't find in this world, but I don't know if there would be any other psychological, perhaps, answer to how it was being presented in the play. I'd like to offer a brief comment and then open up to our panelists. In terms of the play of View from the Bridge, it is a modern tragedy, and the character's Alfieri serves as the chorus member, as Dr. Beck spoke about, but also the character of Beatrice serves also as a chorus member who talks about, to Eddie, here's what you should do, stop that, what's going on here? So they serve as this idea of reason, Eddie, stop this, stop this, and if you do not, this will happen. And so the idea is, Eddie's tragic flaw is that he does not listen, and he moves forward, and he has to pay for that as well. And so panelists, with that in mind, are you able to offer any well, response? Go ahead. I'll try to comment on that. I think that's a very uh, big question in the play. <coughs> At the end of the play, Marco says, all the law is not in the book, he says. All the law is not in the book. And uh, that's true in Eddie's conversations with Alfieri, because he wants the law to do something about Rodolfo as a homosexual, you know? And um, Alfieri says, sorry, can't do anything about it. The law doesn't uh, cover that. Although maybe it did at one point. Um, and uh, then he goes to him and um, uh, wants him to invoke the law against Catherine marrying Rodolfo. And Alfieri says again, you know, the law doesn't regulate that. So uh, both Eddie and uh, Marco take the, in effect, the law in their own hand and act on some other code of justice, this family code of respect and revenge and, uh, and uh, preserving one's good name. Except that I think um, Eddie violates that. Uh, he doesn't think about his family at all. His, his wife is the one who builds the family up but he pursues his own individualistic uh, agenda there. So I think that your conversation about the uh, family code of ethics is an alternative uh, which covers uh, domestic relations and uh, private uh, disagreements and so on that the law maybe can only cover after something terrible happens as it does at the end of the play. And then just to piggyback off of the doctor here, we have kind of what we, what we would describe as the unspoken law. So it's something that um, even though Eddie uh, in particular, we thought, well, this is morally um, unethical, sometimes what's morally right doesn't go hand in hand with the law. Um, as Alfieri's character said, the law does not speak towards this. And in the research um, that I've uh, actually read in particularly with Italian, um, American lawyers, they actually describe that their um, Italian, that the Italian spirit, that they were kind of expected to actually conversate with the community. So if they're walking down the street, down the neighborhood, and they see this grouchy man, it, they were expected to talk to him. They didn't have any personal relationship with him, but they were expected to talk, to actually see, um, you know, what is it? Why is he so mad? And in actuality, actually helps them to become a better attorney because these are the exact same things that you have to do with your clients. You have to get the facts out. 
you have to get the goal what this client is exactly trying to do so the whole conversation of civic engagement even though there's no unspoken law how can we as a community come together and live together in which um, this community with Eddie did not do along that line I have a question for Tamara and uh, Jay Mast uh, uh, why does Alfieri limp there's no stage instruction in my book. It says that Alfieri should limp. I didn't know I was going to be drilled on this. Um, I think my, well, I don't know. Tamara, do you want to say anything about this? Go ahead, Jay. Carry on. There's, yeah, there's no law that covers this. Um, I have two answers. <laughs> One is serious and one is obviously not. Um, the reason, I mean the direct answer, is that Alfieri I view as somebody who has gone through um, working the lower class, sort of like Arthur Miller. He's experienced these things. He's, um, yeah, he's been a longshoreman. He's done all these things that everybody else has. He's lived through this. He, know, he knows how it is to, to see a child away. Um, and I wanted to bring that in to the character more, um, and I felt like the limp um, insinuated a certain physical, um, yeah, something happened to him earlier. I don't want to give it all away, in case you haven't seen it, you need to come and make that reason for yourself. Um, yeah, so there's that answer, the fact that he has lived through this, and that he's not just a hoity-toity living up far away, being an upper middle class, um, yeah, it brings him down into this story more. Um, <laughs> the other answer is that I fell a few weeks ago, and <laughs> pretty bad, and so I kind of started limping. And just to add to that, as an actor, the great part about it is we definitely have the script that gives us information that will serve as a roadmap to where we go. But for a lot of actors, in some cases, the physicality will help us move into a character as well. And so based on how I move when I put on the, the clothing of a character, how do, how do I feel? And that is part of understanding character development that each actor will take and put on something different too that will help them understand how does the character move, how does the character feel. And I think in terms of Jay Mass and the character of Alfieri, it moved from Jay to Alfieri. And I think that commentary, too, helped the audience. When I see Jay, my family was commenting when they saw you speak afterwards. They said, oh, who was that? Was that the, the Lordy character? He seems a bit different. And the other characters, too, for Rodolfo and Eddie, even, when we act, we put on a different movement, a different background. All the research that they have taken, they utilize that. And I think that's part of it. And for Jay's character, the lip was part of it. For the others, it was the dialect work and the accent work. For others, for Catherine, for example, she had to, to walk with her high heels, right? So that was part of that, that kind of walking around in a little sway there was part of moving into the character. Each person had something different. For Rodolfo, he had to dye his hair blonde. So in some cases, uh, Arthur Miller gives us a lot of tools to help us understand character. And the pieces that aren't quite filled in, the director and actors have a great time filling in the blanks there. Great question. So, I had two thoughts about your lip. <laughs> I thought it was very good. Uh, one is, uh, you're a symbolic character. Um, you stand for the law, I think, in the play. Um, the tragedy shows the limits of the law uh, to regulate human conduct. So I thought that showed um, 
the law and the very impressive presence of the play, but with its limitation. And I also thought about Oedipus Rex, who limps, of course, too. But that's sort of beside the point. Excellent. Very nice. We have time for one more question. One final question. All right. Although this play is, has attacked issues of concern in our community, the big question is where do we go from here? And I think by coming to this panel discussion, we have started a conversation. This is not where we stop, this is where we begin. So I'd like to take another moment to say thank you to our panelists for your time coming here for us to have a conversation.